welcome in. You're more than welcome in. We're going to listen to some of Roland Martin Unfiltered YouTube. His lineup for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Happy Wellness Wednesday, everybody. How are you feeling? His lineup for tonight. Brian Flores in the NFL lawsuit. National Signing Day. W. Kamal Bell. And, quote, we need to talk about Cosby, end quote. Brian Flores and an NFL lawsuit on National Signing Day. Former NFL coach Brian Flores speaks about his lawsuit against the NFL for discriminatory hiring practices. Flores interviewing for a few head coaching jobs says the lawsuit is bigger than football. Speaking of National Signing Day, Grambling State University's head coach Hugh Jackson will be here to talk about high school recruits and give us his take on Brian Flores. Plus, Showtime is airing a new docu-series called, quote, We Need to Talk About Cosby. End quote, directed and executive produced by W. Kamau Bell. He'll join us to explain why this project was important to the culture and why he was nervous about the project. After serving about half of his sentence, the man convicted of killing Raquan McDonald will be released from prison tomorrow. The NAACP wants the Department of Justice to step in and file more charges. Senator Mitch McConnell doesn't know how many black women work in his office. We'll tell you why 
artists want their music pulled from Spotify. Yeah, we briefly covered that yesterday in one of our podcasts. And in second, we'll hear from Roland. It is Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Folks, uh, the lawsuit by former Miami Dolphins uh, head coach Brian Flores is exploding all across the country. The NFL is responding, and people are saying Flores should be supported by African Americans. We'll talk about that with our legal panel. We'll also be talking with Hugh Jackson, the head coach at Grambling, to talk about, of course, uh, National Signing Day and what he's doing down there at Grambling. But he also weighed in uh, on being asked to tank games when he was at the Cleveland Browns. We'll talk about all of that on today's show. Also, Showtime has a four-part docu-series called We Need to Talk About Cosby, directed and executive produced by W. Camus Bell. He'll join us to explain why his project was important to the culture and why he was nervous about doing it. Folks, also, after serving about half of his sentence, the man who's convicted of killing Laquan McDonald will be released from prison tomorrow. The NAACP, they want the Department of Justice to step in and file hate crimes charges against him. Uh, folks, it's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. morning shows to talk about his class action lawsuit filed against the NFL for racial discrimination. Uh, this is what he had to say to CBS. You filed this lawsuit, which yeah. you are aware is obviously going to have enormous repercussions. What was the tipping point for you through your experiences that made you feel this was something you needed to do? Well, I mean, just, you know, I've been on you know several interviews over the years. Um, and Look, I mean, this is, we didn't have to file a lawsuit for, for the world to know that there's an, an issue from a hiring and firing um, uh, practices so in the National Football League. Why did that, that's um, correct. A lot of people this, yeah. have pointed this out. So why did you feel you needed to do this? Because we need change. That was, that was, that was the number one reason. Um, and I know there's, there's a sacrifice, there's risk to that, but um, at the end of the day, um, we need change. We need change. Um, I, I know many very capable um, black coaches, um, some of my staff who I know um, if given an opportunity or when given an opportunity are going to go and do a great job on their interview. Um, and I would just hate for that uh, to, be a, to be a waste. Uh, and I think, you know, 
We need to change the hearts and minds of, of the people making those decisions. That's why we're, that's why, you know, we filed the lawsuit. Who are those people? Who specifically do you think needs the change? Uh, the owners uh, of the NFL. You will ever coach in the National Football League again? I'm hopeful that I will. I'm very hopeful. Um, but I understand the risks of, 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 of filing a lawsuit like this. Um, but I'm very, I'm, I am hopeful that I will. It's something I'm passionate about. Uh, but if change, if change comes, um, and if I never coach again and there's change, it, it'll be worth it. You know, we were in. All right, folks, let's get right into it with our legal panel, which we have every single Wednesday. A. Scott Bolden, former chair of the National Bar Association Political Action Committee, Robert Patillo, he's executive director, Rainbow Push Coalition, Peach Street Street Project, Monique Presley, legal analyst and crisis manager. All right, folks, let's get right into it. Scott, you've looked at the lawsuit, you've read it, 58 pages. Uh, clearly, he did not play around. He did not take this thing lightly. Uh, this is, and he's also looking for other folks to join him in going after the NFL. Your thoughts? Um, he's got a lot of facts in the complaint. I think he's pled enough facts to get past what we call a motion for summary judgment. It's a class action lawsuit. Get in a certified class is really tough, very high bar. But if he gets enough people to come forward, he can certainly try it. He's got a very fine firm representing him. But let's, let's be honest. The reason this lawsuit is blowing up is because it peels the scab of racism out of the image of the NFL. The NFL has one image, 70% black ball players. It has another image, all white owners and majority white uh, coaches. And so it really hits home the heart of the NFL of what they're concerned about. And if you read the facts about the interviews with one team, I think it was the Giants that showed up inebriated. No, that and was uh, Broncos. No, 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 that was Denver Broncos. He alleged that was Denver, Denver Broncos. Broncos then. One, one of the teams, but he's pleading with specificity. That's hard to get around. Now, of course, the NFL and the other uh, teams are going to deny that, and we'll have to see what happens. But the fact of the matter is race discrimination in employment, but also in the hiring, is are colorful claims, cognizable claims, and we'll have to see what the court says and how far they get. If I was a betting person, I think they'd try to settle with him. But if he's on a mission with this lawsuit, then he's probably not going to settle, <coughs> and we're going to see more action down the line. Monique, the thing here is uh, one of the things I think is important is that Brian Flores is doing what Colin Kaepernick did not, and that is he is going on, he is doing media. Kaepernick filed the lawsuit, hit his attorneys out there. No, Flores is out there as the face. He hit, uh, that was ESPN. He was on, which is a partner of the NFL. He went on CBS This Morning Show partner of the NFL, was on CNN as well. He is doing these media appearances, uh, speaking in his own voice, saying, yes, I am putting my career, he's only 40 years old, uh, on the line. And so what, you, and what you've seen is you've now seen Marvin Lewis, uh, who was the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, talk about essentially a fraudulent interview that he did with the Carolina Panthers uh, when uh, he was brought in. Hugh Jackson talked about when he was asked to tank games and get paid for it by the Cleveland Browns as well. It's almost as if it was a strategy that was years in the making. If I were a person who was devising a strategy for how uh, the NFL could be vulnerable to lawsuit, I certainly would be shopping around with assistant 
coaches who are talented and with college coaches who should be brought up and tracking what happens in the interviews, whether they're taken seriously or not, whether they're given opportunities or not. The way that the lawsuit uh, and the media is rolled out, it's obvious that a great deal of thought was put into it and that it wasn't something that they just up and pull the trigger on for Black History Month. Uh, and it's it's methodical and it's very detailed. And I agree with Scott, there there will have to be some answering. Um, <laughs> I, I wish I could say, though, that I believe legally that there was sufficiency to go the distance. I'm not sure about that at all. But I think that the damage is so severe and the facts are so ugly that if they were smart, they would not just settle but make some promises. They should have a settlement that involves equitable remedies going forward, Robert, meaning changes to their way of doing business. Robert, here's the deal. Uh, that was 20 years ago. What I mean by that is this year is the 20th anniversary of Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary stepping forward, threatening to sue the NFL unless they, unless they made changes to the hiring of black coaches as well as black executives. The NFL agreed to uh, their report, put these changes in place, uh, voted on it in December of uh, 2002. Cyrus Mary, that attorney, one of those attorneys, will be on this show tomorrow to talk about that. Over the years, they made more changes to it. But the reality is the NFL owners who control the league, they flouted the rules. They don't care. When John Gruden was hired with the Oakland Raiders, uh, now the Las Vegas Raiders, they didn't even bother. Uh, Mark Davis uh, said, we're targeting John Gruden. John Gruden signed him to a 10-year, $100 million contract. He was all good. They didn't consider anybody black. They, they interviewed the, 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 the black tight end coach who didn't even realize there was a job posting and the NFL did nothing. So the reality is, the longer they've gone on with the Rooney Rule, the teams have basically just ignored the Rooney Rule. Uh, it hasn't done anything for them, and the NFL has never punished the teams because it's kind of hard to punish the teams when the teams are actually your boss. Well, look, Roland, I, I think I'm far more optimistic about the chances of this suit uh, than many people, just because of the, the nature of what they pled. So they pled a 1981 action. They, uh, they uh, have another cause of action under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I think most importantly is the EEOC action that they filed. Because under uh, with the EEOC action, all you have to do is go to the EEOC, get a right to sue letter. That gives you to bounce into federal court. Uh, if you can just so, show that there's a disparate impact to the uh, actions of the uh, the defendant in the case, well, that you should be enough to get you past the motion for summary judgment and to get you into discovery. That is what the NFL fears more than anything else, discovery. They fear it in the Gruden case. That's why they always try to settle cases like this, because if you get a hold of those internal emails, text messages, meetings, records, those sorts of things, then you get to see exactly how deep the rot goes. And let's just look, give some examples from the last couple of years. Houston Texans. Bill O'Brien runs the team into the ground. They bring in David Culley just as they, a black person, and they set him up to lose, and then they fire him immediately when he loses with the sorry team you gave him. You can look at a team like the Atlanta Falcons, my team. We fired uh, Dan Quinn last year. We let a Raheem Morris coach the team. He did a great job coaching the team. Instead of simply allowing him to keep coaching the team, they fired him and brought in a white person. You can look at uh, Lovey Smith in Chicago, fired after a 10-win ten, uh, ten season. Uh, Jim Caldwell in uh, Detroit, fired after taking Detroit uh, Detroit Lions to the playoffs. You can look at Steve Wilson, Arizona, bring him in for one year, give him 
a sorry quarterback like Josh Rosen and then fire him for Cliff Kingsbury. Even if you look and, and on the other side of things, they keep they talking about this concept of a meritocracy as if they were simply hiring the best and brightest. The two Super Bowl coaches, Sean McVay, the reason he's a coach who is the same age as me, is because his grandfather, John McVay, was the coach of the Giants and the GM of the 49ers, so they put him in the system and bump him to the top of the line. The other coach, Zach Taylor, the Cincinnati Bengals coach, you mentioned Marvin Lewis earlier. Why is he a coach? Because his father-in-law was um, Mike Sherman, who was the uh, coach of the Packers, and they put you at the front of the line. So being an NFL, uh, NFL veteran, African-American, who's done exemplary work as a uh, as a coordinator, worked your way up the line, doesn't get you in front of somebody's son or somebody's grandson, well, I think that's very clear evidence of disparate impact that gets you past emotion for summary judgment and gets you into the discovery phase. And I think once that discovery opens up, we're going to see the gates of hell open for the NFL. And what uh, uh, Flores has made very clear is he doesn't care about the money. He is here to make change and to make a point. They did not ask for damages in the complaint because they want equitable relief and that equitable equitable relief will come after they get into the discovery process and can show the world what the NFL has really been doing. Think about what a couple emails from John Gruden did earlier this year and now um, or last year. And imagine what happens when all the internal communications of the NFL are made public. It's going to blow up the entire league, and that's what they're afraid of. Well, first of all, the uh, John Gruden is suing the league, uh, so uh, there's been no settlement there. The thing here that we would talk about this particular case uh, that, that we have to understand is that the NFL has been claiming all of these different, oh, my goodness, we're about diversity. They painted in racism in, in the end zones in every stadium this year. Uh, you, you, you see them embracing all these black folks performing at halftime. Uh, but the reality is when you look at the numbers, they don't lie. The numbers also don't lie where black coaches outperform, but they don't get the exact same shot. I mean, to the point that Robert Maid's got, uh, look, I'm from Houston. The Houston Texans, David Culley was a wide receivers coach at the Baltimore Ravens, was not, not considered by anybody to become a head coach. The Texans hired him, uh, and again, lasted one year, then they fired him. Right now, they are considering, as a serious finalist, Josh McCown, who played 20 years in the NFL, has never coached in college, has never coached in the pros to become their head coach. Black coaches are going, are you serious? I got to put in the dudes and you're going to hire some dude who, who played 20 years and has never coached on any level other than as a, as a volunteer on the high school level. And so I think what's important here is that what Brian Flores is saying, I am putting my career in jeopardy, but somebody needs to take this step. And they tried to mediate this for 20 years with the Rooney rule. It didn't work. A lawsuit seems to be the only thing to get their attention. Well, the Rooney Rule was an experiment, and every experiment, once it runs its course, is going to have to have some adjusting or lawsuit. They've adjusted it. They've adjusted it multiple times over the last 20 years. And there's right yeah. now, there's one black head coach in the NFL. In the, last, in, the la in the last two cycles, 16 head coaches have been fired, one black. But, but you're absolutely right about that. So the numbers don't lie. Sorry, 16 well, coaches hired, not fired, 16 hired, one black. Go ahead. But let's think about the NFL and the environment. They have an antitrust exception, right? Right? The 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 the, the billionaires, twenty-seven billionaires, who have used to, who are used to hiring and firing because they because of whatever reason they feel they're completely unregulated, right? They pay the NFL, uh, Godal, right? They're his bosses, if you will, 
and so insidious racism and discrimination, supremacy, and 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 white privilege is going to run rampant in that environment. You don't have one black owner, and if you did have black owner, it really wouldn't matter. And so we shouldn't be surprised that this has come to a lawsuit. These are really open secrets. We haven't even begun to talk about owners offering Flores and others a hundred thousand dollars to throw games. To lose. Well. Congress is going to be interested in to throw games in order to uh, bastardize the draft process. You lose more, you get a higher draft pick. And, 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 so, and, and if you're the black coach, you lose, you lose your job. And get fired. Same, yes. same well, thing exactly. happened to Marvin Lewis and But you don't get fired after one year anyway, whether you got a good team or bad team. The history that, um, that, that we just heard, the, the history of black coaches being fired after one year when they've had challenging coaching jobs and, 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 and teams, uh, it just makes no sense. Those are great facts, right? And you don't need uh, certification or a letter to sue from the EEOC. But I like that EEOC piece being in there because they've pled enough facts. In 1981, they can meet those, those standards with those facts as well. And so let's not be surprised. What we ought to be watching is who else joins the lawsuit or brings their own separate lawsuit. Because then Goodell has a problem, right? And because the discovery, the emails, and what have you, they're going to the plaintiffs are going to get that, and then it's going to blow the cover off the insidious and the inside track that we never see called the NFL. Well, here's the thing, Moni. Uh, that it's not just we talk about the EEOC, the New York Human Relations Commission. Uh, first of all, they filed this lawsuit in federal court in New York. Okay, uh, that's where the NFL is headquartered. Second of all, the New York Human Relations Commission has been extremely aggressive on matters like this. So by putting those two together, a federal lawsuit and also seeking redress with the Human Relations Commission, it also is forcing this thing further in the light as opposed to the NFL just saying, oh, we can try to get try to get it dismissed in court. That You can try that. You still got to deal with the Human Relations Commission. Right. No, and I, well, and I don't, I don't know that the discovery standards are the same, but I agree uh, with Scott and with Robert that, that this case absolutely should make it through to discovery. My um, only issue and concern is we seem to, I recall, say the same thing about Colin Kaepernick's suit and that once we got into the discovery, we would be peeling back all of the hideousness of the NFL and et cetera and so on. And looking at the fruit of all of that labor, I don't believe that we have much to show for it. So um, I hope that this turns out differently, but um, I, I don't believe that there are just idiots in Idiotville who are writing in the emails, let's make sure we don't pick the black guy. Uh, so I'm not waiting for that kind of smoking gun. I'm, I'm happy to see whatever there well, is ba well, there. Well, based upon I those John Gruden, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Allen emails, that sucker might be there. We, and, we can only pray. And, 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 and remember, those emails weren't just in the last couple of years. Those went back more than 10 years. And so yeah. that's what you did. You know, that was more than 300,000 emails the NFL went through. So it's a whole lot they could be looking at. Uh, go right ahead, Robert. But there are a million emails. Remember that. 
and and that's the point that, that I was going to make. Just think about the uh, the controversy with the Washington football's team or the Washington commanders now, or they fought tooth and nail not to have discovery come out because of their sexual harassment issues. If they're able to get class certification in this case, and I think you can find enough uh, black potential head coaches, coaches or potential offensive coordinators who have been part of those sham interviews uh, that they talked about. Because remember, this isn't just head coaching. You have one African-American head coach right now, but even look at offensive coordinators. you got Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich. They look at defensive coordinators. I think there's about eight. If you look at special team coaches, they have about four African-Americans. So it's all the way down the line. So it's not simply former head coaches that can be part of this class. It can be any of those individuals who felt like they have been passed over for racial reasons yep. to, uh, to join in to become part of class certification. Once you do that, now you, instead of just suing the Broncos, the Dolphins, and the Giants, you can bring in all the teams who uh, who wrong those people also and make it a league-wide issue. And I think that's that's where you go, where you start bringing, uh, getting to that blow-up point. But to Monique's point, the difference between the Colin Kaepernick case and this one is this is a lot bigger, a lot deeper. And by seeking class certification, you really do make it an existential threat to the NFL's organization. Oh, and it's all yeah, but, 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 it's a, uh, Scott, but, real, no, quick, real quick, real quick. If I don't want to hire you and I hire somebody else, I'm not having broken the law. If I don't hire you because you're black, right, then I've broken the law. I violated the EEOC in 1982. That's a fine distinction. The NFL owners are going to be arguing that in this lawsuit. But if, but if by, based upon your own rules, you are to grant interviews, they're supposed to be serious. If you're able to show, yeah, y'all already decided you were going to hire somebody like Brian Flores has alleged, like Marvin Lewis has alleged, and you're bringing in people with these fake interviews. Okay, but I, wait, 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 I'm, not, I'm not done. I'm not, I'm not done. If you bring people in for fake interviews, and then the NFL does not take action against them as their rules say they are supposed to, then you have that problem as well. The NFL, there's a reason why, and again, tomorrow, we will have on the attorney, Cyrus Meary, who worked with Johnny Cochran to put these rules in place. He's a co-founder of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which has also worked with the NFL to oversee this. So if they are able to show a pattern where you had fake interviews, they were not real, then, and it was, and they can, they can say, hey, NFL, these are your own rules. Your teams broke these rules. Why did you not penalize them for doing so? They're going to have to explain that, which is, which is the point why he expanded this thing beyond just head coaching to assistant positions uh, as well. And so uh, it's going to be more talk about it again. But he doesn't benefit from that. Who? He doesn't benefit from that financially. That's a persuasive fact of the lawsuit. Well, but, but he doesn't benefit from that. From what? He doesn't benefit from from them finding, aha, uh -huh, you gave fake interviews and therefore you violated the Rooney rule. The NFL can charge the, the players, I'm sorry, the team, but Flores doesn't benefit from that. Well, maybe, that, well, that, well, maybe, that, maybe, well, maybe, well, 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 maybe the point here is Flores is not trying to see the benefit personally. He's trying to change the system. And so again, he'll never coach again. Well, here's he'll the deal. He, he, Scott, he's already, he, Scott, he's already acknowledged that. But here's the deal. It's a whole bunch. Of, look, I can tell you right now that the black folks who led the Polaroid revolutionary workers who went after Polaroid and tried to get them to divest in South Africa. Guess what? They didn't work again. But you know what they did? They started a worldwide uh, change to divest in South Africa, which led to apartheid coming down. Sometimes you've got to put some shit on the line.
win, and you may lose yourself, Amen. but you're changing the system. That's why Brian Flores is doing it, and he actually articulated that in all of his interviews. He said, somebody has to step up and change this. I'm the man for these times. Are you we'll really see? lecturing me on why he filed the lawsuit? That's not even what no, I'm no, 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 no. You focused on money. Uh, uh, Scott, Scott, you brought up, Scott, Scott, you brought up money. I'm bringing up him wanting to change the system. Folks, I got to go to my next guest who understands this. He's, he's spent years in the NFL uh, as an assistant coach and a head coach. He actually weighed in on this. Uh, we were supposed to talk to him about uh, National Signing Day, him being the head coach at Gramley. We're going to talk about that as well. But he weighed in with what, what, what Brian Flores said by saying he was asked and money was put on the table to throw games in Cleveland. And then what happened? He had a massive losing record with Cleveland. And then he gets fired and they say, oh, you can't coach. That's how this system works, folks. Welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered, Hugh Jackson, head coach at Grambling uh, State. Coach, glad to see you. Thank you, Roland. Good to see you, too. So I'm sure, you you know, uh, uh, the NFL was thinking, man, all the attention is going to be on Tom Brady retiring. <laughs> Brian Flores knocked that off the, off the sports page. No, he did, and uh, deservingly so. Uh, Brian is uh, very brave in coming forward and uh, telling his story. I tried to do this, Roland a while back and nobody wanted to hear it. And I'm sure it's because of the record, uh, because people, you know, when you're one in 31, people look at you or whatever the overall record is and say, well, this guy just can't coach. So that wasn't the case. Uh, I understand that more now. I'm just glad that Brian has come out and I stand behind him 100% and what he's dealing with. Uh, but uh, one of the folks who works with you put this tweet out saying, hey, Brian, give us a call. We have evidence if you need it when it came to uh, being asked to throw games. Uh, you responded. Come on, guys, show the tweet, please. Uh, you responded to that uh, by saying, absolutely, that, uh, that is what happened, uh, where you were asked, hey, we'll kick some more money to you on the side if you lose games. No, so I think it's important that we really understand uh, what this is. That wasn't meant that way. It wasn't, we're going to kick more money to you if you lose games or, boy, you go lose these games. They built a team that could not win. That is different. So you build a team that can't win. You put a minority coach out in front of it, and all of a sudden you have a structured plan, a four-year plan that you put in place that had no wins in the first two years, but it had wins in years three and year four, but you do pay based on percentages of the things that you had in the plan, aggregate rankings, being the youngest team, having the most draft picks, uh, quarterback playing, uh, quarterback playing above a certain percentage. Those things to a coach doesn't say that we're trying to win. And I really didn't understand it because I've never seen a bonus structure like that. And I didn't get this bonus structure until about a month and a half that I was on the job. And that wasn't even completed until it was being six months or seven months on the job. So I really still didn't get the what it really was all about until I had my team and we started playing games. And I could see my team wasn't good enough. I just came from Cincinnati being uh, pro football writers coach of the year. I understand what good football is. I competed in the same division, and we just didn't have enough talent. So people got to understand the other side of tanking. You can build a team that cannot win. And the reason why we say we have all the evidence, I've taken this to the National Football League. I've had this conversation with Roger Goodell. I went through arbitration with the National Football League. So I've done all these things in order to try to put this out because I didn't want this to happen. I feel 
just like Brian, I did not want this to happen to another coach in the National Football League. And I said that to them, them being Roger Goodell and the executive executive committee there. I did not want another man to go through what I went through. And I went through it alone. And I know what that felt like. Okay. So when I see Brian Flores in this situation, I'm not going to let him go through this by himself. And he was a lot. It's a, and, and you know. And I'm sure the text messages and the phone calls have been flying around the last 24, 48 hours. It's a whole bunch of brothers who never got to be head coaches making two, three, four, five, six million dollars. Uh, you take look, David Cully is going to get paid out by the Houston Texans. So he coached for one year. He's going to walk away with 20, 22 million dollars. Look, he's set for life. And so a lot of these brothers, they could never say anything uh, because they're making Far less than that. They're thinking, hey, I got to provide for my family. And so when a Brian Flores comes out, 40 years old, this is not a 70-year-old guy now suing. He is in his prime. That first head coaching job, he is literally saying, "Somebody, I am doing this for the brothers who were in front of me and for the brothers who are coming behind me. Somebody has got to force this thing to change. Absolutely. And I, like I said, I stand with him in that. That's where I was. That's the conversations I've had with the National Football League. I wanted to be that guy because I have been to that mountaintop twice. I've seen what this is. I've experienced all sides of this. And there's no way I wanted this to happen. I've gone on record saying I didn't want this to happen to Brian because I saw the direction this was going in. You know, the National Football League is somewhat a copycat league. So what was happening in Cleveland, I knew it could show up someplace else, and it just happened to be in Miami. Um, okay, to my panelists, I want you to get, I need y'all to ask a quick question of Coach Jackson because I have to get to talking about Grambling today, National Signing Day, and this historic marketing deal uh, that Gramley is doing when it comes to their players and their likeness. Uh, first question goes to you, Monique. I don't have a question. Congrats, Coach Jackson. Thank you for your work. Thank you so much. Robert, so you, uh, you mentioned not putting together roster is not good enough to win. I think you had Cody Kessler and Deshaun Kaiser and quarterback, and you know I think Terrell Pryor might be the best quarterback on that team, quite frankly. But no, Terrell Pryor say? played receiver, caught yeah, he played four receiver, yards. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. He was probably the best quarterback. Well, no, remember, he was a college quarterback, came in as a, as a quarterback, and he switched to wide receiver. Yeah, that, that's my point. He was probably the best one on the roster. What would you tell young coaches when it comes to taking that first head coaching position, uh, when it comes to going into some of these rosters that are basically destined to fail before they even get there? I think it's so important that you understand your contract. Uh, I think you got to really dive down into it to make sure who's making the decisions, understand uh, every word that's in it, because that's really going to tell you what role you have on the football team and creating the team. And then you have to understand um, what the GM's role is. Are you really going to be collaborative uh, and understand what the upper management's decisions are? Are we really trying to win? What are we trying to really do here? And I'll, I'll go on record as saying there's nowhere in the National Football League does it talk about in your contract losing. Nobody gets paid for losing and nobody takes a job to lose. We take these jobs to win and increase our value. So you better make sure that everything is right for you to have that opportunity. Scott. Yeah. Uh, coach, one question I have, uh, Brian Flores was a successful head coach at Miami. He had two mm -hmm. winning seasons and then he was fired. That certainly helps his case or does it hurt his case? 
No, I think it helps his case. I think Brian Flores is one of the bright young minority coaches in all of pro football. And it's a shame that he's having to deal with this at this point in time. He should be celebrating, coming very close to making the playoffs and uh, getting ready to uh, get his team better. And now he's out on the out and having to deal with all these things that he's dealt with over, over there. Uh, Coach Jackson, let's talk about, let's now shift to talk about uh, what you're doing at Grambling State University. Uh, This video that we're playing right now, uh, this video we're playing right now, Coach, uh, you announced today uh, signing the largest class uh, in Grambling history, announced your coaches as well. But you also, let's talk about this unique marketing deal uh, that uh, is also being worked out because now players are now able to get paid for their image and likeness. Uh, and look, uh, one of the biggest issues that HBCUs have had is competing against the large institutions. Folks talk about their facilities, things along those lines. The reality is this is now changing the game economically uh, for you to be able to attract players, not only players coming out of the high school, but maybe that person who's a third stringer at Alabama or Georgia who's looking for a shot to actually play and also get paid. Absolutely. I'm really excited about my class. You know, I think uh, my coaching staff, along with um, Dr. Travian Scott, who's our athletic director, we did a great job of of really – going out and getting guys we think will represent Grambling State University the right way. Now, you mentioned about the potential deal that we have, and it's with Urban Edge Network, and it was created to transform the landscape and advertising, monetizing uh, for HBCUs. It is our goal to bring advertising dollars, uh, you know, NIL and streaming video enabled by each, you know, ad tech, I should say, to one-on-one HBCU communities. Students and alums, because I think we know now every student on campus is already being monetized by social media platforms. And our solution gives them a chance to be part of of the back-owned media world as content publishers who get paid for their social graphs. Uh, And first of all, just uh, I know Urban Edge Network quite well because they're actually the sales arm for this show in Black Star Network. So uh, I know uh, Todd Brown and Hardy Pelt uh, very well, and you're absolutely right. It is about uh, it's about changing the game and being able to, to drive those resources. Uh, and what we're also seeing, look, the number one player, number one p- player uh, in the country signs with Jackson State. All of a sudden, now we're seeing other players from, division, from uh, major schools transferring to Grambling, transferring to Jackson State, transferring to Florida A&M. Uh, and already people are sitting here going, oh, my goodness, what's going on, what they're doing. You, it's, it's also a matter of you've got, you've got players at Howard University, of course, uh, a couple of years ago, signed the number one basketball player in the country. COVID, of course, cut his season short and entered the, entered the NBA draft. But you're also seeing a new generation of students who are looking at HBCUs in a different way in the last 20, 30, 40 years where, hey, if you wanted to go to the next level, you had to go to a Texas A&M, an Alabama, a Georgia, a Florida, a UCLA, a USC. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing now is that, um, you know, the Power Five schools, which are great schools, and uh, they normally got the most talent, and now you have a transfer portal. Now you have the NIL deals that are out, like you mentioned. And I think what's happening is, People are now understanding, especially student-athletes, that they need to play and perform. And so what is happening is it's not anymore about how nice a place looks. It's about the people that you're going to be around for your two to four years in college. And so those things are really starting to make a huge difference with the student-athletes because in order to have these great NIL deals, they need to improve their brand. 
So I think that's what's happening. I think it's all working together. I'm, I'm happy that we're paying these young student athletes so that they can have the resources they need in order to have a very good college experience. Uh, so I think there's great things happening, and I'm just so thankful for the Urban Edge Network. Um, facilities, obviously that's important as well. Look, here's the deal. Uh, Grambling had to attract you to the university. Jackson State had to attract uh, Deion Sanders. You've got, uh, of course, the athletic director at, at Bethune-Cookman is Reggie Theus, former NBA player. Uh, it's also incumbent upon the institutions uh, to create the unique partnerships to bring in the resources uh, to be able to compete as well. And so uh, how are you emphasizing that uh, at Grambling and to other coaches who are saying, you know what, Hugh, I like what you're doing there, but if I go to one of these schools, am I going to get paid? And can I pay my assistant coaches? And can we have the facilities? And so all of these things have to happen in order to make it work. You said it. I mean, I think it all goes hand in hand. And I think um, you really have to have a plan. You have to be very strategic. You have to be very intentional as you do these things. I think the value for the player, as you mentioned, it is in a nice campus, in the right environment. Uh, having the right resources that they need in order to uh, first compete in the classroom and to compete on the football field. Uh, I think the HBCUs, uh, we need to step it up. And I think that's what we're in the process of doing. I know here at Grambling, we're going to do everything we can to create uh, every opportunity we can for our student athletes to be the best they can be in every areas. I don't want to be able to talk about HBCUs. And, and I really, because it, it, people, when they bring it up, it's like, we're not as good as everybody else. But this is Gramlin State we're talking about. This was the King Kong of the HBCUs. And I expect to grow this program every year to a level to where we're not even talking about resources and issues that way. We have enough people out there who want to see this school be the best it can be, what we need to do. And we all know it. It's about dollars. So we have an opportunity for them to give and be a part of what we're doing. And uh, some people have really stepped up and did an outstanding job. Um, absolutely. Uh, and again, you made this point earlier. Todd Brown, who was with Urban Edge Networks, uh, sent me this text. Uh, Urban Edge Network was created to transform the landscape in advertising monetization for HBCUs. It is our goal to bring advertising dollars, NIL, and streaming video enabled by ad tech to 101 HBCU communities, students, and alums. Every student on campus is already being monetized by social media platforms. Our solution gives them a chance to be part of the black-owned media world as content publishers who get paid for their social graphs. And so, uh, look, that, that's, that's a huge deal. Uh, certainly, congratulations. Uh, good luck. Uh, I'll actually be on campus Monday. Uh, the, the MLK event was supposed to be January 17th. They moved it to February 7th. And so I'll be on Gramley's campus on Monday speaking to the university there. So I uh, look forward to seeing you, Coach. Thank you. So forward to look, looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. And, and I'll be rocking my uh, – your, your president gave me a Gramley honorary drum major jacket. So uh, I, luckily it's black and gold, my fraternity colors. So I'll be rocking that when I come to campus on Monday. I'll see awesome. you then. Come I on appreciate down. it. Thanks a lot. All righty. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, folks, uh, I want to go to uh, – actually, real quick, before I go to the break, I'm going to go back to the panel here uh, for about two minutes, and I'm going to go to a break. The, the thing here, why – that announcement is huge, uh, Monique, is because it comes down to dollars. The ability to, to create a, a program, to funnel these dollars to students, to these athletes. And again, I'm going to go back to the players of recruiting, but if you're a third stringer at Alabama, you ain't getting a likeness and image deal. But you have the ability to come to a Grambling, become a starter, and all of a sudden, you can now parlay that. 
Look, very few people go. Very few people go to the National Football League to get paid. So now there's a system in place to allow players to actually get paid sizable money. The quarterback at Alabama signed one million dollars worth of NIL deals uh, in his first year playing, and so this changes the game for a lot of black athletes and their families. Right, and it changes it much sooner because, frankly, the numbers, even for that 1% who make it uh, to the big game, to the NFL, who actually make a significant amount of money, the numbers are horrible for them actually maintaining the wealth post-retirement or post-career. Um, and the average career, I guess, is what, like 3.5 years? So... Um, for this to be able to happen, for an economic empowerment advantage to come to young men sooner rather than later is everything. Uh, this, this means something not just for them and for their families, but for our communities at large. Um, it's so funny now, um, uh, Robert, uh, you've got coaches like Lane Kiffin uh, at Ole Miss who's, who's, who's lamenting the fact that players are now making decisions on where they can get the most NIL money. And I'm like, uh, hey, asshole, you were the head coach at Tennessee, left after one year to chase more money at USC. That's what you've done. And you got Nick Saban who's now complaining as well about the NIL money. Well, guess what, Nick? You're making $9.5 million. Well, you know, Roland, we were talking about Terrell Pryor earlier, and think about what what derailed his career at Ohio State, selling paraphernalia that he had actually worn in games, profiting off his own image and likeness. The reason that he had to switch to uh, wide receiver in the NFL was because he never got to finish his maturation at Ohio State. So for this upcoming generation of players who were able to control their image, look at Reggie Bush having his Heisman taken for uh, similar things, this is a game changer for them because through social media, through the ability to make money off your own name, being able to sell, uh, to profit off of the work that you have to put in, everybody ain't going to make it in the NFL. So this idea that you're going to put in three or four years of free work to make it later, you know, your best years might be your college years. Look at Maurice Claret, look at Lawrence Phillips, and the list goes on and on. Allow these young men to make the money now so that they, they can make decisions about what is best for themselves and for their family, start investing now and be ready for the future. And Scott, uh, the fact that uh, they're so upset now you've got top black athletes who are now saying, hmm, Howard, Jackson State, Grambling, those are my first choice. Those are my, on the top of the list. Ooh, it's scaring these white coaches at other universities. Yeah, and, and, and look at how it's even the playing field. Money has even the playing field. And people that don't look like you and me understand money in college sports, in the TV deals and the colleges and universities, how the big white schools get paid. Now you have an opportunity for historical black colleges and universities to get paid and attract athletes who believe not only in your scenario where they may be third or fourth in line at Alabama, but also the fact that they can be a superstar at a historical black college and get paid as much, if not more money on the NIL piece. And so it's going to be interesting the next two to four or five years or beyond in regard to how many black athletes, superior athletes, yep. who have stellar high school career, careers come to historical black colleges now. All who would right. have thought it, that this would be a recruitment tool? Uh, well, guess what? Y'all create a system. We'll benefit from it. Mm-hmm. 
But <laughs> but you got to think a black person like Ed O'Bannon, who sued the NCAA over likeness and image, that stopped the NFL from the NCAA from selling their likeness in those video games. And that lawsuit is what put us on this road to where we are today. And so th that brother there is a modern day Kurt Flood. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, Showtime is a four-part docu-series on Bill Cosby. Kamal Bell is the executive producer and director. He joins us next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Tell around the world, as you know, and every time I go to a country, they repeat this line from Minister Society. Of course, I was in Japan. I'm walking down the street. These two young boys pass by me. They turn. You, you, you. I say, yeah. You build doof, you build doof. I said, yeah. You know you don't puck up, right? <laughs> they couldn't even say the word. You know you don't puck up. <laughs> I laughed so hard, man. <laughs> think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Love is love. Writer and activist, James Baldwin. Anthony, I thought you were doing... Showtime is in the docu-series. We need to talk about Cosby. Uh, here is a peek. Do not edit this. A lot of people knew. Because you can't do what he did unless you have other people supporting what you're doing. Spanish fly, the girl would drink it, and hello, America. Bill Cosby had been one of my heroes. I'm a black man, stand-up comic. I was born in the 70s. But this? More trouble for Bill Cosby. The accusations just keep coming in. This was complicated. Joining me now is the director, Kamu Bell, and executive producer about We Need to Talk About Cosby. Kamu, glad to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me, and thanks for reading the doc, Roland. I appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, indeed, uh, I'm in it. Uh, you talk about how this was so difficult, and uh, even in it, how you, you were like, what am I doing? What's going on here? Why was it so hard? Why was it so painful? I mean, I think you all, you know this. I mean, it's uh, I'm telling a story of uh, that I'm conflicted about. You know, I grew up under as a child in the '70s under the umbrella of Bill Cosby, and then as I grew up in life and heard these stories, I came to believe these women who say he sexually assaulted and raped them. And in the black community, we try to figure out how do we hold these multiple truths, or do we believe these things, or what do we believe? And I felt compelled to try to invite people to a larger conversation about it through the series, which it seems has worked to some extent. 
You, but you, so you you came into this obviously with a position. You absolutely believe that the allegations against him are true. Yeah, I mean, I, I had I had uh, looked into these things and done my research, and also I I have a lot of women in my life who talking about sexual assault, and they talk about why women don't want to come forward and how hard it is, and all the women who who talk about in the series, it doesn't help them to come forward in any sort of in any sort of cultural way because it looks like they're tearing down a black man, especially if they're black, which 33% of the women are who have come forward that we know about. And so I, I, after I believed before and after seeing that with many of these survivors, I believe even more so, you know, and I think people who watch the series, many people are also looking at these women in a different way because it's not just the headlines on the news. It's them having conversations about their lives. One of the things that was very interesting, I had people who were, when they found out that I was in, it was mad as hell. How dare you do this? And I said, well, first of all, you know what the hell I even said. Uh, and, and one of the things that some people have tried to say is, oh, Roland, you talked about all the good things that he did. And what I said, and obviously there was a lot that I said that was not included because you couldn't, couldn't include all of it. But I was very clear uh, in one part that was included. You cannot talk about black America in the second half of the 21st century and act if Bill Cosby doesn't exist. Uh, the only thing that I probably would, would like to stay in, when you talk to the woman with, who did the, with the uh, Black Stuntman's group, uh, their documentary, I thought they were absolutely idiotic taking Bill Cosby out. You can't have a documentary about this Black Stuntman's union and association and take out the very person who actually led to your creation. That was just the dumbest thing in the world. And so you had this over, you had this, you had this, this overcorrection, if you will. Oh my God, oh my God, we can't do this here because it's Cosby. But you can't deny what actually happened that was good for black folks. Well, I mean, that's why we wanted to include that story. I think that Noni Robinson is conflicted about it. I mean, she was clear with that in the thing. And I think at the time that she decided to remove the footage, it was in the middle of all these allegations coming forward. The film, as far as I understand, still has not come out. I hope it does. I hope they figure out how to release it in its best form. But I think, it, it, as this film has shown, this is a difficult thing to talk about. Even if you just want to talk about the good parts of Bill Cosby, everybody doesn't want to hear that. I mean, I think the thing that we've done that people seem to appreciate is that we're talking about all of it. And not everybody has an appetite to talk about all of it, Roman. You know that. How do you how do you answer people? And I, I've already seen these people, man. They sitting here. Oh, these are two clout chasers. Oh, he's a sellout. I won't be watching. This man uh, is a traitor to Bill Cosby. All of that. How do you respond to the people who are uh, condemning you, me and others, uh, for saying how dare you even address this issue? One, I know that this movie is not for everybody. This series is not for everybody. It is not a superhero movie. So if you're not ready for, to have the conversation, there's plenty of other content for you to watch. But I do know people are appreciating it. Two, I would ask those people, where do you come from in this situation? If you believe none of these women, I just sort of have a hard time. How many need to be true for you to believe these women? I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's over 60. And, I, and since I've worked on the project, I've learned about more women who haven't come forward because they've seen how poorly the women who have come forward have been treated. So how many do you need to believe? to believe, to believe that he did this. And on top of that, if you believe these women, why are we prioritizing his voice over theirs? Because isn't some of this about, especially, like I said, 33% of these women are black. Aren't we also about protecting black women, not just black men? Let's go to my panel. Uh, Scott Bolden, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, good evening. I think we're all complex and tortured human beings. It's part of the human condition. How come Cosby has to be one but not the other? Can he be both? Can he be a great actor, comedian, and been very successful, made a lot of money, and still 
be a deeply flawed individual. I think that's what your movie concept captures. I think that is definitely what we were. That is definitely what we were trying to capture. That you that just. I think we have a sense in this society, and this is true across race, that if somebody does good work, then that means they're a good person. And I think what we've right. learned, not just through Bill Cosby, but through many, many powerful white men, good work does not always mean that you're a good person outside of your, your work. But you certainly shouldn't ignore that, though. You've got to tell the whole story, right? That's, that's exactly that's what I have a lot of people who, who, are, who have watched the series who are not fans of Bill Cosby in any way and yet are take away from the fact that they had no idea what he did for the black stunt industry or how much he focused on education. So I think that, like, that's what we're trying to do is tell – that's what I was trying to do was to tell the whole story. And, again, I know that's not for everybody, but I think a lot of Bill Cosby's legacy will be thrown away if we don't figure out a way to talk about it. Robert? Thank you so much for uh, for uh, all the work that you've done. We live in a 140-character society right now. Can you kind of describe the difficulty of explaining things in a full, complex, thought-out uh, way when people are so used to simply reading a headline or reading a tweet, and that makes up their entire uh, decision-making, their entire opinion, without having to dive that deep in? What's, what's been the most difficult part of trying to explain to people the complexity of human existence? Well, I learned a long time ago that we're not going to solve humanity's great problems on social media. Sometimes social media can help uh, help broad, draw attention to things or help draw attention away from things, but we're not going to solve the problems in a Twitter thread or an Instagram post. We can highlight the problems, but we can't solve them. And you're certainly not going to figure out how people can come together arguing with people on Twitter or on social media. So I have given up that side of it, and I gave it up a long time ago. The way that I want to have this discussion is by inviting people to a project that exists. You can look at it. I've seen black mental health organizations talk about how they're using it. I've heard about uh, universities talking to use it as a way to teach about complicated issues. I think we overestimate social media's ability to solve problems. And also, some people use social media to weaponize their hatred, and that's not a place where I'm trying to focus my attention. Monique Presley, you served as one of the Cosby's attorneys. Uh, you're up. I don't have a question or a comment. Okay. Uh, come on. Come on. Um, one of the questions, one of the folks asked here in our chat, why release this during Black History Month? <laughs> uh, technically, it was released January 30th, two days before Black History Month, but I, I would hope people understand <laughs> that 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 the director producer of a project does not get to determine when things come out. This thing has been worked on for several years through the pandemic. It had stops and starts because of the pandemic for lots of other reasons. When we started it, Bill Cosby was in prison. He is out now. So I don't, I can't tell you what the reasoning was before releasing it. While the bulk of it comes out in black history month, but again, technically January 30th. You obviously, I mean, it's in uh, part four where uh, you're almost about to wrap this thing up, and all of a sudden the news comes out in the middle of 2021 that Bill Cosby was released from prison. That certainly threw a mucky wrench uh, in this whole project. Yes, it did. And I think just to even follow up on the Black History Month question, I think that, you know, at some point we thought maybe this project doesn't exist anymore. There are other Cosby projects out there that have tried to come to fruition. I hear Mr. Cosby's working on one himself, a documentary. But I think the thing I want to highlight here is Black people are capable of difficult conversations, even during Black History Month. I think we have to 
we have to understand that our relationship to America is always about how do we negotiate the difficult conversations of this country and being black in this country. And this is yet another opportunity to hopefully build toward healing and understanding and a greater understanding about how primarily women deal with sexual assault, rape culture, and rape, and how they are not invited to tell their stories. They feel shamed by those stories often. All right, the docu-series, again, four-part. Uh, it uh, first started January 30th. Uh, final episode is tonight, but, of course, you can watch all four episodes uh, on Showtime On Demand uh, and check it out. Kamal, we appreciate you joining us on the show. I know you're shooting a movie right now, so thanks for taking some time out. I always rolling. Anything for you, sir. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, just a couple more minutes before uh, we actually go to a break, uh, and then in the second hour we're going to be showing our interview with Bill Duke because I've got to actually moderate the HB STEM conversation. So we're going to have two streams that are going to be going uh, at the uh, very same time. I want to do this here. The NAACP is calling on the feds to file civil rights charges against uh, Jason Van Dyke. He is the officer who was uh, convicted for the murder of Laquan McDonald. He's going to be set to release from state prison tomorrow. Uh, the question is, is this unfair? Monique, I want to start with you with this from New Mexico to Maine. More than 100 million on alert. Rain, ice, and more than a foot of snow. Al Roker is tracking it. Also tonight, President Biden ordering 3,000 U.S. troops to Eastern Europe amid fears Russia will soon invade Ukraine. Our team is on the Ukrainian border. A stunning announcement from CNN President Jeff Zucker resigning for not disclosing a consensual relationship with a colleague. How this stemmed from the Chris Cuomo investigation. The four men arrested in connection with the death of actor Michael K. Williams, what they're accused of doing. The explosive lawsuit, a former NFL head coach accusing the league of racism, our one-on-one -on -one interview. And the text message from Patriots coach Bill Belichick that he says left him feeling humiliated. A rare glimpse inside the jail being called a humanitarian crisis. Rikers Island, NBC News reviewing 100 hours of surveillance. The shocking images we found. And the eight-year-old author who snuck his handwritten book onto the library shelf. And wait until you hear what's happened now. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening. As we come on the air, nearly a third of Americans, more than 100 million, are under winter watches, warnings, or advisories. That ominous swath stretching across the weather maps from New Mexico to Maine. It's a very real path of danger tonight, misery and disruption as well. Snow and freezing rain already pounding parts of the central U.S. Cities including Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit could see up to a foot of snow. Governors in at least four states have already declared states of emergency. Right now, flight delays are mounting as travel becomes increasingly difficult across the storm zone. Let's get the very latest now, starting with Shaquille Brewster in Detroit. Tonight, a mess of heavy snow, ice, and rain stretching from the Rockies to the northeast. The dangerous wintry mix pounding roadways, snarling traffic, and causing blizzard conditions. You're cold all the time, you're wet, it's just not fun. 
parts of New Mexico already buried under 20 inches of snow. More than a foot has fallen in Colorado and Illinois. Wet, heavy snow. This is the wet, heavy stuff? Yes. Are you ready for it? No. In Peoria, a major highway nearly impassable. State police jumping in to help stranded drivers. Missouri's governor activating the National Guard and joining others declaring a state of emergency. Americans across 26 states feeling the impact, including Texas, where last February's freeze led to a power grid failure. More than 200 people died. The state now bracing for days of sub-freezing temperatures. NBC's Morgan Chesky is in Dallas. This will be the Texas power grid's biggest test since last year's storm left millions of people without any electricity. But on streets like this one that went dark for days, the governor says there's still no guarantee there won't be outages, even though the state claims 99% of power generators are ready to go. It could be either ice on power lines that would cause a power line to go down, or it could be ice on trees. The massive system moving east, where this morning Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow. Six more weeks of winter. Predicting a longer winter with more snow. And Shaq, in a snowy Detroit now, travel not only difficult for those driving, but also flying. That's right, Lester. Those flight delays are piling up. Around 5,000 flights canceled or delayed today alone, with more than 3,000 already canceled tomorrow. Lester? Shaquille Brewster tonight. Thank you. Let's get right to Al Roker. He's tracking it all. What are you looking at? 105 million people, we're talking, Lester, who are going to be under these winter weather advisories. The ice storm warnings right through tomorrow. We're already seeing snow from Chicago, Cleveland, Buffalo, also back down into Texas, where we're looking at an icy mix. In fact, anywhere from a tenth of an inch of ice from Dallas all the way back into the northeast of New England. This is where we can see a lot of power outages and dangerous travel. Snowfall amounts. Joplin, Missouri, five to eight inches of snow. Dallas could pick up one to three inches. St. Louis, seven to 13. Chicago up to 10. Same for Columbus, Ohio. And as we move into the northeast of New England, Bangor up to a foot. Same for Burlington. Binghamton picking up about three to six inches of snow. Even Cleveland looking at about 10 inches, Lester. It moves out Saturday, but the damage will already be done. All right. Al Roker, thank you, sir. The crisis in Ukraine is escalating this evening with President Biden now sending several thousand troops to Eastern Europe as new satellite images show Russia's continued military buildup along the border. Kristen Welker is at the White House with more. Tonight, in a show of force, President Biden deploying 3,000 U.S. troops to Eastern Europe with fears escalating Russia could invade Ukraine. The Pentagon saying 1,000 soldiers based in Germany will be deployed to Romania and 2,000 troops from Fort Bragg in North Carolina will go to Poland and Germany. 8,500 U.S. troops had already been placed on high alert with over 100,000 Russian troops amassed along the Ukrainian border. New satellite imagery tonight appearing to show those forces growing. We do not know if Russia has made a final decision to further invade Ukraine. But it clearly has that capability. The president has ruled out a combat deployment to Ukraine late today, saying Putin's actions prompted his move. As long as he's attacking aggressively, we're going to make sure we reassure our NATO allies 
in Eastern Europe that were there. Today, the Kremlin calling the troop deployments unfounded and destructive. It comes one day after a defiant Vladimir Putin said the U.S. has failed to meet his security demands, including that Ukraine be barred from joining NATO. But he also insisted he does not plan to invade Ukraine and is open to more diplomatic talks. Meanwhile, NBC's Aaron McLaughlin getting a rare look along Ukraine's border with Belarus tonight. Over that way is Belarus, where there are thousands of Russian troops with only a handful of Ukrainian border patrol standing guard on this side. And getting mixed reaction from people there. Are you worried about war? No, no, this store owner says. Are you afraid? Everyone is worried. Anything can happen with Russians, he says. And Kristen, do both sides leave at least a path for diplomacy? They do, Lester. That's exactly right. President Biden, in fact, is going to talk to the French president tonight. Meanwhile, the Pentagon saying these U.S. troop moves are temporary and they will still be under American command. Lester. All right, Kristen Welker at the White House. Thank you. We want to get down to that surprising announcement of the media world, one of the biggest names in news and entertainment. CNN Worldwide President Jeff Zucker resigning effective immediately. Emily Ikeda has details. We have news now to report involving our network. A stunning shakeup at CNN. I don't think anybody uh, saw this coming this morning, an announcement like this. CNN president and chairman of Warner Media's News and Sports, Jeff Zucker, is out, resigning immediately for failing to report a relationship with a top-ranking colleague. Zucker writing in a memo to his staff, I was required to disclose it when it began, but I didn't. I was wrong. The 56-year-old called the relationship consensual and with his closest colleague. Gullis, the top marketing executive for CNN, she's remaining with the company. In a statement, CNN Executive Vice President Allison Gullis confirmed the relationship, saying it changed during COVID. I regret that we didn't disclose it at the right time. That relationship surfaced as part of CNN's investigation into its former primetime anchor, Chris Cuomo. Just two months ago, Zucker fired Cuomo for advising his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, on sexual misconduct allegations. Part of this was that a lot of people thought that Jeff Zucker shouldn't have stood by Chris, Chris Cuomo as long as he did and should have fired him much earlier than he did. Zucker and Gullis both rose through the ranks at NBC Universal. She worked in communications. He became the company's CEO. Gullis then spent four months as Governor Cuomo's communications director. But when Zucker moved to CNN in 2013, she soon followed. The abrupt end to Zucker's nine years running CNN comes at a pivotal time. The network preparing to launch its own streaming service as its parent company is in the middle of one of the nation's largest media mergers. Just how earth-shaking is this for the company at this time? It is stunning. This is not a time that anybody would have expected an announcement like this. And now the leadership, the person who has been at the helm since 2013, is gone at a particularly fraught time for the company. Tonight, CNN naming three executives as interim co-heads as the network feels the fallout. Emily Ikeda, NBC News, New York. And here in New York, authorities announced the arrests of four men in connection with the drug overdose death of anchor Michael K. Williams. They allege the men were part of a drug trafficking crew that sold Williams a deadly dose of fentanyl-laced heroin. The sale in Brooklyn last September was captured on surveillance video. The NFL is on defense tonight after that lawsuit by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores accusing the league and several teams of discriminatory hiring practices. Our Gabe Gutierrez sat down with Flores today. Is the NFL racist? 
I think the numbers speak for themselves. There's one black head coach. Until just weeks ago, Brian Flores was the second. But the Miami Dolphins fired him after back-to-back -back winning seasons. Flores and his attorneys have now filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL and several teams, alleging discrimination against black coaches. There needs to be a change. Flores says the New York Giants only interviewed him as a sham to comply with the Rooney Rule, an NFL requirement that minority candidates be considered for head coaching jobs. Well, the Rooney Rule doesn't work. That's the problem. The suit says the team had already decided to hire Brian Dable, a coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, who had no head coaching experience. It includes screenshots of texts allegedly sent to Flores by Patriots head coach Bill Belichick mistakenly, days before Flores even interviewed, congratulating him on getting the Giants job. Flores then asked, Coach, are you talking to Brian Flores or Brian Dable? Just making sure. Belichick replied with an expletive. Sorry, I blank this up. When you realized that he meant to send that text message to someone else, what went through your head? Uh, I was humiliated. The Giants are defending their hiring practices, writing in part, Brian Flores was in the conversation to be our head coach until the 11th hour. Ultimately, we hired the individual we felt was most qualified. Flores also alleges Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross offered to pay him $100,000 per loss in 2019 to improve the team's draft position. That's it's disrespect to the game. The Dolphins deny any racial discrimination and write that the implication that we acted in a manner inconsistent with the integrity of the game is incorrect. Flores now knows he's risking his career. If we can make changes to this, this system, this, and give more opportunities to, to black and minority coaches, real opportunities, um, I think it'll be worth it. The NFL says Flores' claims are without merit. Bill Belichick has not returned our calls for comment, Lester. All right, Gabe, thank you. In just 60 seconds, our series Justice for All, my in-depth look inside one of the toughest jails in America with appalling conditions that even a former corrections commissioner calls inhumane. The FBI has identified six persons of interest in a wave of bomb threats to historically black colleges and universities. A law enforcement official says they're all juveniles across the country who appear to be using tech-savvy methods to try and hide their trails. None has been publicly charged. The FBI is investigating the threats as hate crimes. In Virginia, the suspect accused of fatally shooting two campus officers at Bridgewater College on Tuesday made his first court appearance today. The 27-year-old former student was arraigned on murder charges. The small private college said the two slain officers were good friends and were known on campus as the dynamic duo. A group of public defenders is asking President Biden to visit New York's main jail complex, Rikers Island, during his visit here tomorrow. While the jail stop is not expected, justice reform advocates are drawing attention to what they call inhumane conditions at the jail, leaving a mostly pre-trial population and those who guard them at risk. Rikers Island, New York's massive jail complex, just a few miles from midtown Manhattan and scene of a humanitarian crisis. What are some words you'd use to describe Rikers Island? Hell. Plain and simple, hell. Benji Lozano recently spent five months in Rikers, serving the remaining sentence from a 1997 assault conviction after his recent parole from decades in state prison on a separate conviction. What do you see in these pictures? I see myself. I see everything that I experienced while I was at Rikers Island. I see inhumane conditions. I mean, look at that. It's, it's ridiculous.
Photos obtained by the New York Post last fall show detainees jammed in a holding area. Lozano says he spent weeks living like this. Feces all over the wall, uh, unoperable uh, restrooms, toilets were not flushed, the sinks would not work. It was just, it was disgusting. And you might be surprised who agrees with him. People were living in inhumane conditions. Until last month, Vincent Chiraldi was in charge of Rikers Island. No recreation, health care was not available to people because we couldn't get them to their doctor's appointments. Violence, he says, was rampant. NBC News recently obtained more than 100 hours of surveillance video from inside Rikers. City officials don't contest the contents of the video. Scenes like this, an attempted knifing averted by an officer, and an inmate organized so-called fight night, where some detainees were forced to participate. Who was running the place? The inmates run the facilities. I wrote to all the judges and all the district attorneys and said, I cannot guarantee the safety of people that get sent here. Chiraldi says one of the most pressing problems, a union contract that gives officers unlimited sick time. He points out that of the nearly 8,000 officers at Rikers, up to a third don't show up on any given day. For six years, Serena Townsend was in charge of investigating misconduct at the jail. People were calling out sick and then... Um, when we would go and check on them, they were not actually at home sick. They were out. Last month, Townsend was fired by the newly appointed commissioner after she says he instructed her to get rid of 2,000 disciplinary cases against officers within 100 days, and she refused. The city denies Townsend's claims. I investigated every type of act of misconduct, and I have to say that a lot of what I saw in those cases are things that are happening that could have been prevented if we had staff in the jails. Benny Basio, the union president representing officers, accuses Townsend of being overzealous in her discipline of officers who are trying to do an impossible job. We have officers that are out sick. 1,500 correction officers have been assaulted in the last year. We have officers dealing with long-term effects of COVID being sexually assaulted. So. You know, this notion that we're out on purpose is just nonsense. Finger pointing aside, everyone agrees that Rikers is horribly broken. And whose fault is all that? I think it's, a, it, it's an administrative fault. It is the fault of people who run the system and people who are in elected positions. Who New York plans to close Rikers by 2027. Meantime, a city hall spokesperson says under new corrections commissioner Louis Molina, more than a thousand officers are back at work and many are now working normal hours again. Up next for us tonight, meet the eight-year-old boy whose book is flying off the shelves of his local library. Finally tonight, the boy with the right stuff, how he got the book he wrote into the public library is an inspiring tale of its own. Here's Joe Fryer. Libraries are designed for checking books out, but eight-year-old Dylan Helbig recently proved you can check one in. They thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. He recently wrote his own book, filling an empty journal with 81 pages of words and illustrations featuring an exploding Christmas tree and a giant turkey. It's called The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas by Dylan Helbig himself. That's right, by Dylan his self. Story so good he felt it belonged on the shelves of the Ada Community Library in Idaho. So, ever so discreetly, 
He took the initiative. And then I came in this aisle. No, wait, this aisle. And then I put my book right here. What were you afraid of? The librarian catching me. Were you afraid you might have been in trouble? I, I haven't really thought about that part. <laughs> we didn't think about that consequence of that part yet. <laughs> when the librarians did find out, well, they threw some stickers on it and made it available to check out. My first reaction was, what? <laughs> really? You know, is that possible? Like, you can do that? You can do that? <laughs> At last check, the wait list for Dylan's book was at 64, motivating the young author to get going on a sequel. And it's called The Jacket Eating Closet, based on actual events. A budding publishing empire thanks to a sneaky plan by Dylan himself. Joe Fryer, NBC News. Author, author and marketing genius. That's nightly news for this Wednesday. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. This is page 81. What's it say at the end? We'll be right back in the next book.